0: Good evening to you all. Is it loud enough in the back? Thank you. We've had a little uh, survey in the talks of Dharma teachings. We've had a lot of talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and then we have had talks recently about the five spiritual faculties and the seven factors of enlightenment. And we've had a talk about a few talks actually about the hindrances. And then we've had our lab work in the hindrances. Our on the job training, so to speak. And so there have been a lot of teachings, and there's some b- been some very inspirational stories that have been told, too. Last night, Guy was was talking about Deepamon, how when she was asked what it was like to, in her mind, what her mind experienced, she said the only thing that was in it was um, concentration, loving kindness, and peace. And then I think when Carol was... Uh, giving a talk. She she had a beautiful quotation from uh, Ajahn Jumian that kind of described what was like to be inside his mind when there was very high equanimity, when there was no resistance to anything that was being known. Everything just kind of slid through without their being even the slightest impulse to do anything with it or to adjust it or to correct it in any kind of way. That's a pretty high bar. So we've been doing a lot of things. We've been learning a lot of techniques. So we had all those instructions Two weeks, nearly two weeks of instructions every morning, and then we've had our Q&A uh, sessions every morning. And there's been a lot of information provided about technique, method, ways to practice, how to go about working with the mind. In fact, you could say this whole setup that we have here on retreat is a kind of techniqueing. The silence, the seclusion of the place itself, the schedule, the preparation of simple meals, the provision of single rooms, the staff to kind of be a buffer between you and the outside world so you don't have to really deal with things too much. So you could say the whole thing is a, is a technique or a skillful means for moving Uh, the mind in a certain direction. So we're clear about the direction that this process is going. It's going in the direction of increasing wholesome states of mind and decreasing unwholesome states of mind. That much we know. That's the description, basically, of of the four great endeavors or wise effort. And we've heard that The mind uh, is freeing itself from uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the direction of the evolution. That's what's taking place as part of this process. So now that we're four weeks into this, the question may arise, how am I doing? (laughs) Have you had that thought? And if you're out there wondering that, what do you think that your grade would be? Or how do you think we should think of this? Should we grade this on a curve? (laughs) You know, like relative to the beings here? Should we use like an absolute scale where we'd have complete enlightenment at one end and, you know, hopeless... (laughs) (laughs) lostness and delusion with no possibility of escape at the end or, or should, we, should we like to compare our minds to that of fully enlightened beings? Should we kind of uh, stack ourselves up against Deepama or Ajahn Jumian and do a little compare and contrast? Or, you know, because there is a, there's a lot of inspirational stories And we as human beings have a very strong tendency to compare our, ourselves to others. That's part of our social need, trying to figure out how we fit into our various human families and hierarchies and cultures and all the rest of it, It's a really strong tendency of mind. And In fact, the Buddha said that one of the very last things that happens for people Uh, at the point of complete enlightenment is they lose that tendency to compare self to others as as good as, better than, or the same as others. So it's going to be there for a while. It's one of the last things to go. So it's very deeply rooted. But now here's the question that comes up. If we're doing the grading and we're doing the evaluation, then I think we need to entertain the question, are we really equipped to grade how we're doing? Do we really know? How would we know? How would we know how we're doing? There is a big piece here that ties in with the primary issue that we have to deal with in practice, which is We're starting from a place where there's a significant amount of delusion. It's not that we just don't fully understand. It's that we actually actively misknow or misunderstand things. How they are, how they work together. So we we go to practice with, with delusion in the mind, and we're practicing with delusion in the mind stream. At a certain point in practice we start to become aware of the the delusion and it's easier to take it as an object. But at various points in practice we're completely out of touch with the fact that there's delusion present. In fact, delusion is what's sitting in the seat or on the zafu doing the practice. So we take as a starting principle, there's, there are things that we don't know, things that we don't understand, and there are things that we actually misunderstand, but we're not sure which is which. <clears throat> so this whole process, in a certain sense, is coming to clarity about that very point. And in the last talk I gave, I talked about this confusion about our span of control this tendency of mind to get in there and attempt to exert authorship or ownership of things in order to get things to be the way that we want them to be and we see this tendency again and again in practice with the mind struggling with very various things trying to make uh, certain events be according to our will or our idea of how they should be, and uh, on the other hand pushing away certain things that aren't fitting the prototype that uh, we would prefer to have. So it's a deep, deep tendency. So we learn about our span of control issues by running into these again and again and again and again. So we do a lot of kind of running into walls and falling down stairs and, yeah, just bumping and bruising ourselves up. This is part of what we do. So this tendency towards delusion is very often, I'll say almost always present, when the mind turns in the direction of analyzing how it's doing in practice. It's almost always there. I'll start with the first point, which is we're clear about the overall direction of of the practice. I talked about it earlier. So we're clear about what the North Star is and where North is. But there are a lot of steps, moment by moment, along the path. And a lot of different territories, moment by moment, along the path that we will go through that we will experience before we attain the understanding in depth that we seek. So we don't, we know generally where we're going, but specifically, uh-uh, we don't. Have you noticed that? You know, you come into a sitting and you'll have a particular idea about how it's going to be, maybe based on a previous setting or how the walking period was or something, and you'll sit down and it'll be really different than that. So this delusion is a little bit like trying to see the back of your own head if you could see it, it wouldn't be delusion, but we can't. And that's what makes it tricky. So I'd like to talk about some particular things that are rather deluded that we all often assume about practice. So These are particular things that I've noticed. And a lot of these come from my own mind so I've done my own research in this department so see if it you know, resonates with any of you again I say you know very often these are like half conscious or unconscious but they're there so a first diluted thing is that uh, pleasantness is a sign of progress <laughs> pleasantness is, is a sign of progress That if we're progressing, it's going to be pleasant and uh, it will get more and more pleasant as we go along. Okay, Another delusion is unpleasantness is a sign things aren't going well. There can be extended cycles of unpleasant vedana in practice. And it doesn't mean that the practice is heading for the bottom of the hill. Now think about it. We're saying the universal characteristics of all things are not-self, impermanence, and dukkha. But we somehow think that that dukkha piece is never going to register, right? Or at least that we shouldn't have long runs of unpleasantness and sometimes outright suffering. Okay. We may have a deluded belief that progress is linear, that if, if you're doing kind of the right things, if your technique is okay, that it's, it's going to be like a ramp or something. It's just you know, you could bar graph it. It's just going to you, know, you draw a line. It's going to be nice and even, linear. That's not true either. Okay. There are cycles to these things. There are are major cycles, minor cycles and major cycles in practice. So if you, if you believe this one, then if you run into a period of practice where things are, are difficult, the tendency is to think that there's something wrong with that. No. Just dukkha. And closely aligned with this is the deluded belief that apparent retrograde motion is a sign that something wrong is wrong. Have you had that experience where, you know, you're, you're cooking along and you feel like, oh, I've got to, I'm getting this now. I've got a sense of this. I'm getting this. I'm getting this. You know, you have some walking periods where it, the mind is pretty much with the body. You can feel the sensations of the feet and the legs. There's not that much thinking. And later in the afternoon, you go out to your walking spot and... Confidently... <laughs> stand at the end of your and your mind just goes into some huge kalesa (laughs) some huge hindrance arises in the mind and then maybe like a sense of disappointment and wondering well what did I do wrong what did I how did I screw it up Another diluted thing is the idea that maps represent everyone's experience. So one of the teachers, I can't remember who, alluded to the fact that there are maps, quote-unquote maps, like the progressive insight, that describe a particular way that the mind can open by stage. But here's a really important piece. Not everybody's experience and practice conforms to these maps. And in fact, many people's experience does not. So, you can have this experience where people who are... Strong map believers are pulling out their copy of the progress of inside, or, you know, getting on their their smartphone and looking it up and trying to locate where they are on the map. And, okay. So that, that the belief in the maps uh, is often closely associated with uh, the diluted belief that. Someone in the middle of practice can accurately place themselves on the map. Okay. The maps are a way of describing how things have unfolded for some people using certain kinds of language, but they're not a GPS kind of thing. There's not like a little beep, beep. Beep, with your pin on there. Beep, 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 beep. Heading into dissolution. Beep, 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 beep. Okay? You have no idea where you are on the map. When you're in the middle of practice, trust trust me on this. Your teachers have a hard enough time figuring out where you are on the map. Okay. So another delusion is that Practice is all about technique. The technique is a method to invite the mind to come into close, connected, skillful relationship with the phenomenon of the present moment and to stay there and notice. Notice until the mind starts to understand the big picture of how it creates suffering for itself and out of that direct seeing lets go of it. So the technique is not a magic ritual in and of itself. And in fact, there are many, many different ways to teach insight practice, dozens and dozens of them. And within each of those uh, schools, there are different... Emphasis, emphases, sisses. <laughs> different weights given to different kinds of things. Like some are concentration dominant, some are attitude of mind, looking at that, some are use a primary object, some use not a primary object. There's a, a whole different span of them. These are means, means to encourage the mind to take this particular orientation towards the present moment and to be able to rest there long enough to be able to see what's going on, to take the seat and stay in it as experience arises and passes away, arises and passes away, arises and passes away. It's kind of a little bit like seat belting you in there, you know? Okay, another deluded thing, is to believe that it's all about the breath or other primary object. So very often we start with collecting the mind uh, with the breath. And it can be a very good and a very useful technique. Even as a primary technique, And it can be very useful. But let's face it, there's a lot of time even here on retreat, where you're not paying attention to the breath. right? You're standing up, you're moving around, you're doing your yogi job, you're taking a shower, you're... If you think it's all about hanging on to the primary object, to the exclusion of everything else, you're cutting way, way down on your practice time. Way down on your practice time. And... You're not training the mind to be able to keep mindful awareness more easily through the comings and goings, the daily activities that are, constitute the majority of our life when we're not on retreat. Okay, another delusion. No strain, no gain. Leaning forward gets you there sooner. Gets you tired. <laughs> gets you stressed out. Has, have people noticed that? Have you noticed that in your own practice when the mind is like really like... <laughs> starts to tip? Well the present is just the same speed all the time you're not going to hurry it up you don't need to nudge it along you know, nudge nudge the unfolding you know, just take the seat sit back relax let the show begin just stay there all right. things will change things will happen things will okay So another delusion is that you can tell how somebody else's practice is is going from the outside. (laughs) You know, talk about our tendency to grade our own practice. Well, there's only one tendency that may be stronger in this department, which is the tendency to grade the practice of others, right? Right? She's so peaceful. (laughs) That person who's crying and crying in the hall, maybe right in the middle of their seat. they might be present right there with it exactly as it's happening. You can't tell. The person who's walking really fast seems to be agitated. They could be right there, right in the middle of it, in their seat. You don't know? So another deluded thing is that we know what the outcome of practice is. So I said earlier, well, we know the general direction, we know that this has something to do with the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, and uh, suffering in the mind that's associated with that misunderstanding. But we can't really understand what a state of awakening is by any of the descriptions. And we really tend to think of it, for instance, this is just how our minds tend to think of it, we tend to think of it as we're going to get something. We're actually going to, there's going, something is going to accrue to our selfhood. It's going to be like Mm -hmm. self but it's going to be super self. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully everyone will notice. We can just pervade, be known. Like, (laughs) you might be surprised to to notice it's more practice uh, process of deduction rather than addition. Okay. Another deluded thing is that we believe uh, we know what we should be experiencing at any moment. Have you caught this one? Like, no, this should be here. This, this should be, it should be this. It should be like this. It should be like this. I should be able to feel the breath. I should be able to uh, let go of this restlessness. I should, um, I should be able to sit without moving. I should be able to, to Cut off thought. At this point, I shouldn't have thought. (laughs) So, a related delusion is that uh, we shouldn't be experiencing a certain something at any moment. This is the, this shouldn't be happening note. (laughs) This shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be having this experience. It shouldn't be like this. The breath should be clearer. I should be able to feel more sensations when I'm walking. I should be able to catch vedna at the first arising. I should be able to catch vedna, and then I shouldn't feel aversion to the fact that I didn't catch vedna. <laughs> So like where, where do we get these? It's like we pull them out of someplace. But We're deluded in that we think we should be experiencing what we imagine a good yogi experiences. Is there a prototype in your mind of a good yogi? A good yogi, it's kind of like this mythological being, isn't it? Archetype, the good yogi. What was the story uh, last night about the the great teacher who gave the great teaching to his great student by turning around and showing his great callous butt? (laughs) The good yogi, the yogi who can sit through hell without flinching. (laughs) Whose sleep starts at four hours a night and goes down from there. Not only does she take the eight precepts, but she's reduced her consumption of food to a single grain of rice. And she doesn't mind. Okay, we can run away with the archetypes. (laughs) We have a delusion that things should be getting clearer and clearer as practice continues. Like We might start out kind of, but then it'll clear up. It'll be like fog burning off on a sunny day. Just get clearer and clearer and clearer. But it doesn't work like that. Because sometimes, as you get clearer, what you actually see is how often you're not present. You can have the idea, oh my God, I'm getting worse. Have anybody had that thought? I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. It's like there's so many gaps. I see them now. I see them. Oh, I used to be okay. I was... (laughs) I was mindful all afternoon, (laughs) and now I find I can't get out of the hall without there being lapses. Now, do you think you're actually getting worse, or do you think maybe there's a little more noticing per minute going on, and so there you can see like the smaller breaks and things. There's this whole other interesting piece that happens in practice as well, which is where... The cycle of perception that we've had, the way that we've been uh, knowing things, the way we've been relating to objects, changes and it becomes different. It might become something like all of a sudden noticing or knowing things when they first arise. Like, boom, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm being with the breath, and then boom, all of a sudden there's hearing. And boom, all of a sudden there's body sensations, and then there's a thought, and it's like one thing just happening right on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. Or there can be another cycle where the, the mind is going, I saw the beginning of a thought, I saw it uh, rise and stand, and then I saw it pass away. I saw the beginning of a sound, and I, I heard it, and then I saw it pass away seeing the beginnings and being the seeing the end. And then there's this whole other cycle where it's just, the mind can't catch it at all. It's all passing away. It's falling away. It's falling away. The mind is trying to find some stability in this whole process of uh, things coming and going. And the only thing it sees is the taillights going over the cliff. And at these points in practice, the mind goes, I can't get it. I can't get it. I can't get it. i got to try to get it. My practice is slow. I'm I'm not landing on anything. It's not clear. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's right. (laughs) It's not clear. Hmm. Okay. So another delusion is that the idea that when we go on retreat we should pick up where we left off at the last one. Now did anybody come in with this consciously or unconsciously and uh, find some surprises? We have this idea that things kind of repeat themselves or the mind tends to gravitate towards the the sit that we remember uh, where the mind was the most concentrated, the most clear, the most allowing, the most centered, the most tranquil, the most alert. Okay, you had one of those in the last retreat. The mind goes, that's okay, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be like that. I'm, I know that, that one it's going to be. And then, of course, you come in and every retreat is different. There's no repeating retreats. <laughs> so if we drag all that in, we drag that into it. Well, that's a lot of unnecessary baggage. We could have the idea that uh, a difficult sit or a day or a retreat means that there's something wrong. Hmm. This is an interesting piece, given that we've undertaken the investigation of suffering and the causes of suffering, that this is kind of a big piece of what we're doing here, but we don't expect there to be suffering. It's like, I want to learn all about suffering and how suffering is created. So. Somebody write a note and put it on the board. <laughs> well, you know, it's your own lab, okay? You're, you have your own laboratory. This is how all this is being understood and made known, right? It's in the arising and passing away of your own immediate direct experience at the six sense doors. That's where you're learning all of this, right there through the direct observation. So there can be sits, there can be days, there can be whole retreats where it's just hard. And a last alluded thing is the, the view that it's up to the I-sense, the self-sense, to make it happen. That there's something there that you have to make happen. But we've already talked about this, the limitations of the span of control that we have, that it. this is the teaching of not-self. We can't make it happen in an immediate sense because if we could make it happen like that, then we'd probably be home drinking lattes, right? But we can't. We can enter into a relationship with our own uh, process. The arisings and passings away of these five aggregates and become awake within this process and that's how the purification and the understanding takes place. But it's non-negotiable. We don't dominate it, we surrender to the knowing from within it. The light of consciousness, bring the light of consciousness within it and wake up to it. And it purifies itself. It's not through our self-doing. So, I'm imagining that at least some of these may sound familiar one or two maybe, just guessing, but... So the Buddha is always talking about, you know, what do we do about this uh, tangle of views, this thicket of views, these ideas that we have? Who will untangle this tangle? Well, that would be you. (laughs) It's gonna have to be you. (laughs) Fortunately, we have some, some uh, good advice, and we can do that. But it, it is this gradual process of clarification, seeing and clarification within this process of the arising and passing away of things, seeing the arising of the delusion that wants to take hold of it and control it, seeing the suffering that arises when that happens. Seeing how things go when that delusion isn't present and the awareness is just there and present within the stream of things that are happening, relaxed and attentive and allowing. So by now, on your four-week adventure, I've had a number of people come in today and say it's four weeks, it's four weeks. So is this like the, this is kind of like um, the report card period or something (laughs) going on for people? It's been four weeks. I had to say, not until tomorrow. (laughs) I guess that has to do with the leaning forward. <laughs> so, how to, how to relate to this? How to relate to this? I remember watching an interview that Bill Moyers did with Pima Children. It's a while back. And he said to her, she was talking about, he, he asked her uh, about her longest silent practice period. And as the questions often uh, turn when they're coming from people who haven't had this experience of this silent, intensive practice themselves, he said, what's it like? What was it it like to be silent so long? (laughs) And she said, detox. (laughs) Which I think surprised him. I think he was expecting to hear something like, oh, it was wonderful, it was just so uplifting, and I was wrapped in bliss, and my mind went out and filled the universe, and I came to understand that I was everything. (laughs) (laughs) She said detox. So we know she's an honest woman. And that's that's the truth of it. You know, there are these cycles of purification, where things are really difficult, and it becomes very apparent that things aren't under our control, our immediate control, and where we want to unbuckle the seatbelt, get out of the chair, go to our room, pull the covers up over our heads, or go out to the car, put the stuff in the trunk. <laughs> and head on out. <laughs> and this is part this is all part of it. This is the this is what it is. So when it's like that, when it's like that, what do we do? We're in this process of purifying the mind by taking the seat, taking the view, just sticking with it, sticking with it. But we can't necessarily draw on what's pleasant. We can't necessarily draw on a sense of clarity about where it's going or where we are on the path or this sense of, you know, real firm confidence that we've got it all down and we understand what's going on and we're in directing it, we're in charge of it. No, we're kind of sitting there and it's all happening it's all arising and all passing away it's really it's really calling for the surrender to the process and the integrity of just being willing to take take the seat and allow what's happening to happen but there's this whole other aspect of it which is this is really where our paramis come into play as resources to us. These particular qualities of mind that are sometimes called perfections of mind, but which are aspects or attributes of our character that we've developed over time. And the understanding is, for instance, that the Buddha, in order for the Buddha to become the Buddha, He went through many, many lifetimes of practice developing, strengthening, purifying these factors of mind and they became the actual platform from which he could undertake the last uh, push as a bodhisattva to fully awaken. And these particular qualities are, in our tradition, are ten in number and they're Generosity, sila or moral restraint, non harming, renunciation, discernment or wisdom, energy or viria, heroic effort, patience or forbearance, truthfulness. Determination, goodwill or metta, and equanimity, upeka. So, for you to be here on this retreat, to be able to do this, to commit to some, to be oriented towards something like this, and to commit to do something like this, you already have these strongly developed. They may not be equally developed. Uh, within you, some may be stronger than others, but you have them, or you would never wind up at a place like this, doing this kind of thing. And in practice, you, you really need to draw on these, to rec- recognize these when they're present. Because they just, as they were a platform for the Buddha, they're a platform uh, for you as well. Because sometimes it's just resolve that's keeping you going. Or it's metta, when you think of the value that this could have in your family and your community. Or it's dana, the sense of generosity that's part of being willing to, to sit with a reactive pattern that's caused suffering to you and other people. Or truthfulness when you come in to have your meeting with the teacher and you put it out there just the way that it is even though it might be a little bit embarrassing or you feel like you might get a correction that's going to be kind of hard to take. or equanimity when it's tough in the, in the afternoon after it's been good in the morning and then it's good at night and then the next morning it's tough again. The mind just keeping involved, keeping engaged with it. Viria when you kind of feel like you, you're hitting a wall, you're not sure if you can go on any further and you say to yourself, well, it's just moment by moment, right? I can do this moment. I'll take my seat for this moment. I'll stay here with this. So these are all qualities that are part of your practice. They arise in your practice. They support the practice. I had a really powerful uh, experience of uh, the paramis arising at a retreat I did a couple years ago with Pawak Sayadaw. Has anybody here practiced with Pawak? So, this was held up at the the forest refuge. And Pawak Sayadaw is a a Burmese uh, meditation master who teaches concentration. He teaches uh, Abhidhamma based jhana and other concentration practices. And he has a very particular and a very um, demanding method. So the retreat itself was very strict. So it was, our first sitting was at 4.30 in the morning for an hour and a half. That was the first, <laughs> that was the first sitting of the day. And with the way he, he teaches concentration, he has a very specific thing that he wants, basically wants the mind to do in order to enter into very particular concentrated states. And so there was tons and tons of sitting, 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 sitting. There, I think there were only two walking periods all day long. Uh, everybody was on eight precepts. So you'd, you'd go into these sittings, which would be at least an hour and a half long, if not longer. And all the awareness was at the nostrils right here. Right there. No place else. No going to the body, no awareness of the body. Uh, With the knowing of the breath, it was all right here. Or as he would say, not here, not here, not here, not here, 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 (laughs) here. (laughs) And so there's this whole particular thing, sequence of things that we're supposed to unfold in a particular way you know like you're supposed to be with the breath be with the breath and the, then the breath was supposed to turn into a visual object and it was supposed to be smoke of a particular color and then it was ter- going to turn into smoke of an, another color and then there was going to be a kind of light and then the light was going to uh turn into uh, uh a nimitta what's called a nimitta a light image and then it was going to turn into uh uh a stabilized nimitta, and then the mind was just going to rest with that nimitta. That's the only thing it was going to know for, like, you know, all day long is this particular light image. Not this, not this, not this, but this. And I was going to stay there. And, you know, this was really, really, really hard, really demanding practice. You know, and many of us worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and it didn't open. It didn't open like that. That's not what the actual experience was, and so people would try and try and try and try and try to get it to conform. And there was a, a monk uh, there who was there as an assistant, a Western monk, and he would sometimes do Q and A periods. And um, uh, so one of the questions he read from the from the retreatants at one point, went something like this, or this is how I remember it. This is after probably a month or six weeks into this. This was a four-month retreat. It's probably six weeks into this. And the question was something like this. I've been trying my best to stay with this and to open up this practice in the way that it's described, but I've, I'm having very limited success. I can you know, have the experience of smoke or something, but it never resolves in the nimitta. Nevertheless, I'm fully committed to applying myself completely to this. And my understanding is that even if I don't succeed in attaining jhana, that my paramis are ripening in the process of making the effort to do so. So he reads this question or comment and is asked to respond to it. And the most interesting thing happened in the hall which was and I've never seen this in a retreat before let alone at this kind of retreat there was spontaneous applause. <laughs> there was spontaneous applause and there were a lot of a lot of people for whom this was the experience. Can you imagine you have been six weeks into this, your whole focus in the world is down to the tip of your nose, and whether or not you've got this light disc, Okay, but it was, it was the most uplifting, one of the most uplifting experiences I've ever had on retreat, because you could feel it in the room. You could feel the, the surrender, you could feel the purity of mind. And all the paramis working, because a lot of the people that were plotting couldn't do it either. That sense, like, there's long-term benefit in making this kind of effort with integrity. I can't measure this in the immediate by whether or not I'm having the outcome that I seek. I can continue to work in this way whether or not I get the immediate expected reward that I'm seeking. So whatever else was going on in that retreat, the paramis were being ripened. The paramis were were strong, were being strengthened. So that's something to remember uh, alongside of or in juxtaposition some of these very uh, idealistic stories that uh, were sometimes uh, uplifted by of people who have crossed over to the other side and what their minds are like. Their minds are very beautiful. Their minds are very developed. Their minds are very evolved. And you know what? They went through the same kind of process that you're going through here. They didn't start like that. It's all about taking the seat, strapping in, keeping your your place, allowing it to come, allowing it to go, offering your full-hearted commitment to the process. And when uh, the internal greater arises in the mind, you can just say, I see you, Mara. I see you. So let's just let the words settle. May we practice with integrity, letting go of the demand for outcome. And may this purification of effort be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings.